0: In 1989, I was 20, and my new bride was 22, when right after our honeymoon, we loaded up all of our worldly possessions into a 6x12 U-Haul trailer in Southern California. We moved 1,500 miles to the Midwest for me to begin seminary, and after getting settled, we began doing what all of you have done at one point or another, and that is we began the somewhat stressful venture known as church shopping. And uh, listen, this was before the internet, okay? This, this was... The Day of Yellow Pages. Anyone remember those? Okay, we had a handful of people at Yellow Pages. It was a very versatile tool. It served both as a source of information. Uh, For those of us who lived near a bigger city, two or three of them served as a booster seat for us when we were children uh, at the table. But you'd have to flip through all the pages, get to the C's for churches, and then you'd jot down a list from the uh, Yellow Page ads that you saw. You'd get a service time from the ad, and then you'd get this... You'd actually have to get yourself up, get ready, and physically go show up in person because there was no such thing as checking it out online uh, beforehand. So you'd have to show up, and then within about two minutes, you would know if it was a fit Or, uh, and the worst experience was when you knew right away that it wasn't, but then it's like, I took all this time to get an effort to get up and get ready, and you didn't want to be rude and just walk out, but then afterwards it's like, well, that was a waste of a good Sunday. And then you'd go home and you decide to visit the next church on your list the following weekend. So one Sunday, we decided to visit a church uh, that wasn't too far from us, partly because it had a really snazzy yellow page ad. uh, And without really thinking about it, we just simply dressed like we would have dressed for our church in San Diego, which was pretty much beach casual. And it was the awesome 80s, so everything was really brightly colored, okay? Uh, So the morning of our first visit, we arrived about 10 minutes before the service. The parking lot was packed. We walked into the church, about four 400 people. Uh, the lobby was bustling. We looked around. We weren't really sure where to go. But within about 10 seconds, we realized that we stood out like a cat at a dog pound. Okay, we were clearly in the wrong place because we were looking around. Uh, everyone was dressed differently. And by the looks on their faces, we could, we, we're, we're in the wrong place. Uh, but the other thing that struck us was that even though we were clearly visitors, no one came to talk to us, no one approached us. Instead, people were obviously avoiding us. But in spite of that fact, we really enjoyed the music, we enjoyed the preacher, so we decided uh, we're gonna give it one more shot. But I, the way I think, I said to my wife, I said, let's do an experiment. And uh, the following Sunday, I wore a suit and tie back in the 80s, right, okay? So I wore a suit and tie, and my wife wore a beautiful 80s dress, okay, and uh, we, uh, we did like what we'd done the week before. We got there 10 minutes early, we walked in the lobby, and immediately, we had person after person and a couple approaching us, welcoming, welcoming us as first-time visitors They wanted to know our names, where we were from, how long we've been married. They congratulated us for escaping the heathen state of California. They said how glad they were for us to join them for the first time. And I remember, as much as I tried to make it into a game, it bothered me. And the more I thought about it, it just began to bother me deeply. Deeply. Uh, It made me wonder how many other outsiders had walked in through those same doors and received the same treatment that we had the week before. How many others, maybe, maybe feeling lost, maybe seeking God, maybe experiencing spiritual or mental or relational challenges or confusion or even pain, had finally worked up the courage to go and insert themselves into a social situation with people they did not know, Desperately hoping to find answers, maybe healing, maybe hope, belonging, only to be ignored by the insiders because of the way they looked. How many hundreds of thousands, if even millions over time, have been turned away from the good news of Jesus Christ and that of a loving God because a group of Christians ignored them at best or ostracized them at worst based on appearances or based on other illegitimate reasons? And I remember the more I chewed on it, the more I just just became so angry, and it actually became a defining moment for me as I looked to the future of being a pastor and the kind of church that I wanted to be a part of shaping and leading where people didn't have to strive. People didn't have to strive for, look, or dress a certain way before they could experience a sense of belonging. We're in the third part of this series called The Forgotten Way, Should I Stay Christian?, And we've been talking specifically about the word Christian, because for far too long, huge segments of people, especially Americans, have settled for Christian. And whether you're a Christian or not, if you've missed either of the first two messages, you'll be somewhat a little fuzzy or unclear, maybe confused what I mean when I say that. So please be sure to get online and watch or listen to that later, not now, Uh, because what we're talking about, it's a huge deal, and there's a lot at stake. Because millions, rather than being inspired to know and follow Jesus, are being driven away or kept away from God and faith and church, not by the overwhelmingly good news that through Jesus we have been gifted the opportunity to have peace with God and a richer, fuller, more meaningful life. Most in America are being driven away by what we call Christianity or evangelical Christianity that long ago lost sight of what we've termed the forgotten way. The earliest followers were sometimes referred to as the followers of the way. And beginning in about the fourth century, men, women, and culture began to settle for Christian. Huge segments, and we've suffered the consequence ever since, the consequences. It's why there have always been Christians on both sides of every issue, utterly opposed to one another. Christians on both sides of every war. Uh, Christians on both sides of every political, legal, and moral argument. It's why some of you, you have family members that you kind of believe the same stuff, yet you just can't seem to get along. And and. We've said that the reason why as Christian, why Christians can be such a divided, hostile, quarrelsome group, is because the term is only used three times in the New Testament. It was a derogatory term created by those, uh, manufactured in the first century by people who weren't Jesus followers. The term that the people who followed Jesus in the first century, that they used to describe themselves, was what word? Disciples. A synonymous word that was used was Follower. Or followers. And as we've shown the past two weeks, you you can be a Christian and yet believe anything and treat others any way you want. You can adopt just about any kind of lifestyle you want. And if, if anybody challenges you, you just say, don't judge me. I'm Christian. And you tell them something that you believe. But the difference between a Christian and a disciple is this. Christian is all about what a person believes. Disciple is about what a person does. Christian is like following on Instagram, like, wow, check out that lo-fi pic of Jesus feeding 5,000 people on that mountainside, like, hashtag beautiful, hashtag unlimited fish and chips, like and share, okay? Disciple is following that does. Jesus, tell me how how to live my life, and the answer is yes before you even tell me what it is. And if you consider yourself a Christian, You need to understand, people who are not followers of Jesus, who don't consider themselves Christian, they are watching, and they are making judgments based on what they see, and the primary group that is abandoning the faith or avoiding it altogether because of what they have seen in Christianity is your adult children, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, millennials, Gen Z, the next generation. Now, as I said two weeks ago, is there a percentage that will avoid or walk away from or put God in a box on a shelf uh, because bottom line, they want to be able to do what they want, when they want, with whom they want, and they don't want anyone, including any God, telling them what to do or not do. Absolutely. I know that because that was me for a long period of life. And then God got my attention in a big way. Uh, In the last few years, I've become a country song guy. One of the top 10 country songs on the chart today is by Jelly Roll. And uh, the first two lines are, I only talk to God when I need a favor, and I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. That was me. That was some of you. That is some of you. So yeah, there's always been and always will be that category. But I'm talking about the millions of that are being driven away for illegitimate reasons. People who are on the outside looking at those who identify as Christian and say, you may be Christian, but you aren't anything like Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, because large segments of the Jesus movement forgot, or they missed what Jesus made unmistakably clear that should define us. So we looked at this the first two weeks. Jesus said, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are not Christians. You are my disciples. If you love one another as I have loved you, not simply what you believe or what you do on a Sunday morning, the defining characteristic of a person who is a follower of Jesus is how they proactively and reactively treat other people, especially other disciples, other Jesus followers. And to know what Jesus meant by what he said, we have to watch what he did and how he demonstrated that love. So for the first two weeks, we talked specifically about this, and this is a huge deal, because as I've said, if we don't get this right, nothing else matters. We will just be part of the problem, not the solution. Repeating mistakes of the past, and what's at stake is the faith and the hope of the next generation. And today, we're addressing something so very important. How should Jesus followers treat people who aren't Jesus followers? Now, if you're here, you're listening, and you aren't a Christian, you're going to love some of what I got to say, because you're going to go, I have been saying this forever, and this is why I've kept church or Christians at an arm's distance. But for those of us who want to be more than just Christians, we want to be followers, we want to be disciples, the question is, how are we to respond to people who aren't, or who have decided they don't want to be? And the first thing that we have to do is go back to something else that Jesus said on, uh, at, before he left this earth. He's got his closest followers gathered together, uh, and he's uh, getting ready to leave for good. And here's what he said. He says to this group, you, go. Go and make. And he didn't say Christians. He said, go and make disciples. There's our word. And to make disciples is actually a single Greek word. It means to cause someone to become a follower, a student, or a pupil. He says, what I have come to offer is of utmost importance. So I want you to be followers who cause other people to become my followers. People of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. And then he left the earth and his closest followers began doing just that. They began to develop these little word, little, not the German word Kirke or church. The Greek word is Ecclesia. Little Jesus communities, they began to live and they began to teach in such a way that people were drawn to, inspired, to become followers of Jesus. And it grew and it grew and it grew and things were going great. The movement was focused on the event, the resurrection of Jesus, which affirmed everything else that he taught. But then there was a moment that would alter the course of the Jesus movement forever. Leading up to what was called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge against against Emperor Maxentius, 28 October, 312 AD, Emperor Constantine and his soldiers. They uh, had what they interpreted as a vision sent by the Christian God. It was a, a promise of victory if they would paint on their shields the symbol of the Cairo, which was the first two letters of, of uh, in Greek of Christ's name. And so uh, they ended up doing this, Emperor Constantine ended up defeating Maxentius, which led to Constantine's conversion to Christianity, which led to Christianity becoming the official religion of Rome. And now, the church had the power, which seems like it could be a good thing. But here is the historical fact. History has proven over and over and over again that anytime the church or Jesus followers leverage anything other than sacrificial love, that, that we always go backwards, not forwards. Because Jesus said it by this one thing. All people will know that you are my followers by how you irrationally, counter-culturally, sacrificially love one another. But once the church got the power, they decided we are done with love. That's too soft, it's too hard, it's too slow to get the results that we want to have. We are going to leverage power and we're gonna leverage authority. And after the church gained control, the Great Commission of Jesus transformed into this. As if Jesus said, go and impose my teachings, values, and worldviews on all nations, threatening them with judgment and destruction if they don't do everything I've commanded you. In other words, it got reduced to this. The message became convert, leave, submit, or die. And that message has carried through the generations in huge segments of Christianity. That's the message of a group that has power and control. That was not the message of Jesus. Neither was it how this little fledgling group of Jesus followers grew to such a point that the empire of Rome ultimately embraced Christianity as their religion of choice. The West was one spiritually because a group of people, they understood the goal was not to impose on or to threaten people with something, but to win them. The Apostle Paul, he is the ultimate example of this because he decided to go into the non-Jewish world to create Jesus followers out of people who had their own religion, their own way of life, their own worldview, and they were not looking for another. And here's how he describes his approach in his letter to the Corinthians, which was a really tough group of people to convince. He writes, though I am free... And belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. In other words, I don't power up, get judgmental, I don't get self righteous. I make myself a slave to everyone. Why, Paul? Well, to win to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I am myself not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, the law of love, love one another as I have loved you, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why Paul? so that by all possible means I might save some. Because Jesus said it, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to cause, maybe a better word is to inspire people, to become my followers. And the only way to do that is to win them. And we all get this, right? Because all of us have experienced, uh, you know, some of you, you beat out other applicants for a certain school. Or others of you, you beat out other candidates for a job. Or, or some of you, you, you won a contract and you beat out other people that were bidding on that same contract. And, and, and how, did you did that? how did you do that? Well, you just made that school, you made that business want you or your product more than they wanted someone else's or a competitor's product. You won them over by convincing them that you or your product was better than everyone else's. Or if you're in a romantic relationship. How did you do that? How did you win her heart? How did you win his heart? You won them over by making them want you more than they wanted anyone else, right? I mean, it's impossible to win someone's heart by imposing your will on them. How have we forgotten this? Paul says, for those who are on the outside the believe in Jesus community, I want to win them So I will become the lowest of servants in order to inspire them, to convince them that this is the better way, this is the better product, that Jesus is absolutely worthy of giving your attention and your life to. And again, for the first 300 years, that was the approach of the majority of Jesus followers. But somewhere along the way, they decided we're done with love and winning. We're going to leverage power and threatening. And because we have gotten it, wrong for so long we are driving the next generation away from God and away from Jesus and the ecclesia of Jesus and as I have said every week I did not sign up for that and if you're a Christian I'm pretty convinced you didn't sign up for that either so it begins with us we have a chance like that small fledgling group in the first century we have the same opportunity our chance in our generation to turn things around So in the minutes, few minutes that remain, I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians 5. We'll be putting it up on the screen. Uh, But quickly, uh, the Apostle Paul went to Corinth to share the good news about Jesus. Corinth was like Las Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, okay? It was a very, very immoral port city about 15 miles southwest of Athens. It was very pagan, very, very sensual. He starts a little Jesus community there. He's teaching them the ways of Jesus, but they're surrounded by a culture that's opposed to everything that Jesus represented. So he wrote them letters of encouragement and teaching them how do you follow Jesus? How do you be a disciple in that kind of culture? Well, he gets news that there's some bad stuff going on in the church in Corinth. In fact, one thing's so bad that even the people on the outside are going, are you kidding me? Like, no one does that. So he's addressing this issue, and in addressing it, he gives us insight into how Jesus followers are to respond to people who aren't Jesus followers. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. Now now in this, he introduces that there is a Jesus follower mentality or morality and there is a non-Jesus follower or church morality. There are church standards and not church standards. And what's going on in your church is so bad that even the pagans are going, are you kidding? And see, now you want to know what it is. So a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you're proud. So, so there's a guy in the church, his mom had died, or his parents got divorced, uh, and his dad remarried, and somewhere along the way, this guy is now stat- sh- shacking up with his stepmom, Jerry Springer show. So Paul's going, seriously, you're, you're letting this go on, and you guys are proud? Now, It's important when you think of first century church, think more of like a large community group. When people showed up, everybody knew what's going on in everybody's life. So they all know they're showing up, but the problem is no one's addressing it. And so Paul says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man that has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed Judgment to which we go, whoa, 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 Paul, the Bible teaches that you shouldn't judge. Paul could have gone, I'm writing the Bible, okay? So, th- and, and this will be some news to some of you. Jesus and the New Testament writers don't say we shouldn't judge, they tell us who to judge. Paul's like, I, I haven't even met this guy, but if what you're saying is true, I've already passed judgment, so in the name of the Lord Jesus, on, on the one that's been doing this, and here's why I've passed judgment on him. Because this guy is in the Jesus community. He is a follower of Jesus. I mean, in, 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 in this time, like to go public was to be baptized publicly. You're public. People know. You've made a statement. So he has signed on to be a disciple, and his behavior is way off course for a disciple. In fact, even the non-Jesus followers are shocked. So he says something really strong. It's actually a legal phrase. So he says, I want you to put this guy out of church, and I want you to hand this man over to Satan. The phrase like, I want you to hand him over to his parole officer. So meet your new parole officer, Satan. Okay. And so this is figurative language. Okay. He's, he's saying, okay, tell this guy. Pull him aside and tell him, if you want to do this, that's your choice. You just can't do it here as part of this community of movement and what we're trying to represent and who we represent. So go ahead and, and go out there and just go all in. Because Paul knew what some of you, like me, have learned the hard way. What everyone learns eventually. Sin always has built-in consequences. In fact, Paul in another letter says that the wages of sin is death and he says that in context he isn't referring to physical death but it's rather that every time you sin there's a death of sorts that sin kills things for for some of you you started out with something that was really fun in your life but then it became an addiction sin will kill your finances sin missing the mark making that kind of decision can kill a relationship it can kill a marriage Sin can cost you a career. And then afterwards, what do you have? Regret. I wish I would have never done that. You kind of knew you shouldn't have. And it doesn't matter if you're a religious person or not. Every sin has a consequence. So Paul's saying, look, sometimes the shortest route back is to just go ahead and get out there, get all the way in your sin, let it just beat you up really bad. And then you get to come to a church like ours with all of us other beat up sinners And you have a very different perspective on life now. That's how it works. Then Paul decides to address something that he thinks they might be confused about from a previous letter. He says, I wrote you in my letter, and this is a letter, unfortunately, that we somehow lost, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world that are outside the Jesus community who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Now, this is helpful. Right? Because, like, some of you, you go to like some family reunions, you're like, I don't know if I should hang out with these people. Or you go to holiday gatherings, or you uh, go to school, or you go to college, or you go to your workplace, and you're in, this, in these environments, like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a Jesus follower, but these people, they're, they're so different than I am, and they think so different, and their morals are very different, and their values, and, or, or they're everything that I used to be. Like, should I even be around these people? Should I go to lunch with them? And the Apostle Paul's going, yes. You're not supposed to divorce yourselves relationally from everyone who's not a Jesus follower. We're not supposed to disengage from people who have habits or behaviors or morality that we don't agree with. Paul says, but now I'm writing with you, writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be, and he doesn't use the word Christian, anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler, like don't even eat with these, such people. He says that there's someone on the inside of your relational Jesus community who's like, I know what God wants. I believe everything that Jesus teaches, but in this area or that area of my life, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and God and Jesus, they're just going to need to look the other way. He's saying you're supposed to to judge that person. You're supposed to hold them accountable to the Jesus living, the Jesus lifestyle that they have personally and publicly identified with, signed up for. And then he asked the question that takes us to the epicenter of our question today. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And the answer is, it's none of my business. So let me ask you, if you're a Jesus follower, you call yourself a Christian, but now you're afraid to use the term Christian anymore. I totally get it. What business is it of yours to hold a non-Christian, a non-Jesus follower accountable for their behavior? The answer is, it's none of your business. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about civil, state, or federal law, okay? We are talking about someone, who, how they handle their bodies, their sexual expression, their language, their marriage, their money, their honesty, their character, their integrity, how you do business. For someone who never subscribed to the Jesus standard of living, what business do I have of trying to hold them accountable to a standard that they never signed up for to begin with? Paul says it's absolutely none of your business. One of the big reasons so many are avoiding or walking away from the church is because they feel like there's a group of Christians judging them for a standard of behavior that they never signed up for to begin with. And this is another area where we have to return to the forgotten way because in the first century, Jesus followers did not expect non-Jesus followers to behave like Jesus followers. They expected Jesus followers to behave like Jesus followers. Paul wraps up. He says, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those on the outside. See, we've gotten this backwards for so long. Christians have become notorious for policing the behavior of people outside the church while we have done a very poor job of policing the behavior of people inside the church, including, if not especially, the person we see in the mirror every day. The Apostle Paul says, lay off on those on the outside. They are not accountable to your standard of morality or honesty or anything. They never signed up for it. You're to win those outside the church, not judge them. You're to judge yourselves. Now, I know the judge word bothers us, but if you're a parent or if you've ever been a kid, so all of you, okay, in your household, you had rules. And when you disobeyed the rules, the judge showed up, okay? It was maybe your mom or your dad, most often probably your dad or they came together and they judged you. They said, okay, in this household, here's how we live, here's what we do, here's what we don't do, and if you're gonna live here and if you violate those things, you're gonna be judged, okay? It's not a good household that doesn't have rules and it's not good parenting if there's never any judgment. When my four kids broke the rules, I held them accountable. Growing up when I broke the rules, I was held accountable. That's all Paul's talking about. That once you become a part of the body, once you join the Jesus community of followers, there are life rules, there are life standards, and there is accountability that we have been called to grace and we have been called to truth. Please don't miss the next two weeks. We are called in love and humility to judge one another but we have no business judging the morals or the values of those outside the church in Jesus community, what they do with their bodies, their money, or the way they live their lives outside the church. Another way to think of this is uh, how many of you parents that are parents, you go home uh, and then you go to the houses around you to make sure those kids are doing their homework. None of you do that. Why? Because they're not your kids, okay? But if your kids, they don't stu- study or they don't do their homework, then you address it. And if you feel judge, they feel judged, you don't care. Like, I'm the parent, I'm the judge, go do your homework. But you're not going to walk into the house of a neighbor and judge their kids if they don't do their homework. They're not your kids. That's all Paul is saying. But this is such a big deal. A great illustration of this is several years ago, a pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll and his wife Grace, prior to Mark hitting some big bumps in the road, they wrote a book together called Real Marriage. And they were actually invited onto The View. How many of you are familiar with The View? Okay? Like five of you? No, more of you are. Uh, Well, if you don't know, imagine you're a pastor, Uh, you and your wife, you're talking about Christian sex and marriage. Uh, There's one conservative of this group, Elizabeth, she's not there that day, so no one is going to be sticking up for you. It's a bit of a hostile environment. Whoopi Goldberg appears perplexed about this whole idea of abstaining from sex outside of marriage, out of the context of marriage, and she asked a great question, and think about how you would answer this question. She says, "I, I just have to ask because you're talking a lot about being married, Now, if you're widowed and you meet somebody but you don't want to get married again because it's so hard and complex, are you saying that a widow or a widower should just do without because God doesn't like that? Are you saying that people who are widows or widowers, if they don't want to get married again, they just can't have sex anymore? That's a good question. And one response would be, well, that's what the Bible teaches. If you're not married, you're not supposed to have sex. That's one approach to which most people are going, well, no, thank you then. Another response is to go, well, I don't know, and you go anywhere. But here was his response. How do you argue with this? He says, I, I worship a guy who died and rose as a virgin. Like Mary gets all the virgin press. We never, we never think about Jesus, right? I worship a guy who died and rose as a virgin, so that example would be that you can live a full, great life without being sexually active. In other words, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling every widow or widower. I'm not judging anyone. I just want you to know that there's a category of life that can be fulfilling and people can be happy without being sexually active, which honestly in today's culture, this idea is rarely if ever talked about, right? In fact, recently I had coffee with a fantastic young man going to school here in Wichita who shared with me about his love for God and Jesus and even the church, but he is also 100% attracted to men only. And he's on a journey. He's trying to figure out the implications of what this means for his life and his faith. But one thing that he said really struck me. He, he, he has yet to share with his family. But he has shared with some of his classmates. And something that he hates is how for many, he suddenly becomes their gay friend. And he hates it because he said his sexual attraction is just such a small sliver of who he is as a human being. He's so much more, he doesn't want to be identified by his sexuality. But again, the assumption in American culture is to have a full great life, sex has to be a part of it, so naturally, Whoopi asked, well, what does that look like? How does that work? And then Mark's wife, Grace, responded, we know a lot of widows, actually, and single moms, and they're very happy. They have a relationship with Jesus, they're very happy serving other people, and they, they can be content." If they desire to have sexual relations again when they're married, great, but they can be content without it. In other words, there's a category of very real, very content, very happy people who are not in and out of bed with people that they're not married to. I just want you to know there are Christian men and women, is what the message is, who take the Scripture's What Scripture says about marriage and sex seriously, and they actually live that way, it may surprise you, but rather than feel repressed or cheated, they actually feel content and fulfilled and are living deeply meaningful lives. See, that's how you answer a difficult question once you understand it's none of my business to judge non-Jesus people about their lives, their time, their money, their sexuality. What is my business is to follow Jesus to the best of my ability and to allow people into my life who are doing the best to follow Jesus to the best of their ability to make sure that we do a good job of humbly and lovingly policing one another's behavior for our good. Because sin always steals, kills, and destroys and what is my business is to take my cues from Jesus and from Paul, doing whatever I can to serve and love and invest in the lives of those outside the faith and to live in such a way that it is inspiring, that it is winsome, until they come to the point that they don't want to be out on the outside anymore, that they want to know what does it take to become part of what you are a part of. And I'm telling you, when we get this right, people don't feel coerced. They feel drawn. And, and you know this, Right? I mean, most of you are Christians. Most of you are Jesus followers. And I know that, how that happened. You weren't coerced. You were won. You were drawn. It didn't happen because someone decided to impose their beliefs and values and worldview on you and threatening you with judgment and destruction. If you don't do everything God has commanded. And it didn't happen through people who ignored or dismissed you. Who just kept their faith in Jesus to themselves, and you don't think or look like me. I've got my ticket to heaven secured. That's all they needed. No, there was something inspiring and winsome about that person or those people that helped you discover Jesus, wasn't there? The way they actively and authentically, openly lived out their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, as I'm saying this right now, some faces or names are coming to your mind. And you remember these people with fondness, and you're just so grateful. And that's how it's supposed to work. And the bottom line is this. We are to love one another and stop judging outsiders. Love one another. And part of love is, hey, I love you too much to not be honest with you. I love you enough to overcome my fear of hurting your feelings a bit, to get into your business, to let you know you're off track, that you're headed towards a destination. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt others. It's hurting your relationship with God. And I know you don't want that. Our responsibility is to love one another in such a way that people are drawn to watch us live, watch us love, watch how we die and find it inspiring, almost irresistible. Imagine, imagine where things might be if we had never abandoned sacrificial, unconditional love as our primary point of leverage. Can you imagine where some of your friends and family would be? Imagine if we get this right. Imagine if we decide we're going to keep trying to figure out how to love better those on the inside, and we're going to win, not judge those on the outside. I'm telling you, It for sure would even heal some of your families and some of your relationships. And it would change the city. And we could be the ones, like that small group in the first century, help bring about a renewed movement of Jesus followers who reverses the current flow away from the church and inspire the next generation to follow Jesus. Us, we can do that with God's help. Let me pray for us. Father, I just acknowledge that there has been... Plenty of times in my life, I have been part of the problem, not the solution. And I'm embarrassed about those, and I'm so glad your grace is great. So I pray for all of us, Father. Many of us sense that there's, there's, there's about to be or there has to be a shift with Christianity and what, how we relate to you and your son, but Father, we, we need your help because it is going to be something new. It's going to be something different. And Father, I pray that for us and for the kids in the next room, for the kids that are coming, that Father, that you would enable us and cause us to become the movement that Jesus always atten- intended, that the next generation might inherit something amazing from us that they would carry on and make even better to truly be a light in this world, Father. I, I pray for all of this, And I pray for us, God, that we've got those things in our life where we know we're just hoping you're turning a blind eye, and I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength that is needed to take that step of obedience and submission and to trust you with the outcome. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.